Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and this, this is SIPREP, SIPREP, your defence magazine from BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. In the next 60 minutes, the Iraq war inquiry is underway. Why did the UK go to war in Iraq? Why did the Chiefs of Staff have to ask Tony Blair if the war was legal? Did the Prime Minister mislead everyone? Big questions, but who now really cares? Afghanistan, we get the Obama plan next Tuesday. Will British forces literally have to go along with it? Cyprus, why next March is the big month for the island's future? Northern Ireland, why Sinn Féin IRA cannot control the killers. Today's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in America. Thanks for what? And where have all the MOD laptops gone? Long time passing with me in the studio, Dr Rosemary Hollis from City University here in London, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and from the Limehouse Group of Global Analysts, Hashir Tamorian. Well, as you've heard, the Chilcot inquiry into the UK's part of the 2003 Iraq war has started in London this week. In a moment, Rob Watson, the BBC's political correspondent, will be telling us the story thus far. But let's remind ourselves a, a, a few details. John, what's it trying to do? Trying to get to the truth. It's a very difficult job. But it's even more difficult, in my view, by the choice of the people on this committee. It was a committee chosen by the Prime Minister... Um, he has two historians. I know some people complain that both of them are Jewish, dealing with the Middle East. Uh, it's not that I, I object to, but I think uh, one historian would be quite enough. And certainly, could one have historian had, is always quite enough. And he could have an incisive <laughs> journalist who's used to asking questions. There's no barrister, but they have a legal advisor, Dame Rosalind Higgins, but she's not allowed to sit on the panel, nor is she allowed to question the people coming as witnesses. The uh, third member of the panel is a very experienced former diplomat, Sir Roderick Lyne, who was the private secretary to Lord Carrington for a time and then private secretary to John Major at number 10 and was uh, ending up his career as the ambassador in Moscow. He's a very experienced man, knows a lot of the inside stories. And there's a lot of the guys that are giving evidence this week and actually they're all sort of looking at him saying, you really know the answers anyway. Yes, they're, they're trembling, I think. And, they, and the last member is strange. I agree it's a good idea to have... A, a woman member, but this is a woman who, was, bo why. who was born in Kenya. Yeah. Um, who this doesn't is Baroness seem to Prashar, have, isn't it, of Runnymede? Uh, yes, Runnymede, and uh, she's uh, uh, Uganda-Asian, uh, Kenya-Asian, and uh, her experience seems to be chairman of parole board, uh, human rights committees, very little experience of international affairs. I find that extraordinary um, sort of lax on the Prime Minister's part. Rosemary, do you, do you take you such a doom? John, why it was a good idea to have a woman. I'm just wondering yes. whether this is to prove that it's not just an old boys' club mm -hmm. do. Do you think? I mean, I mean, come on, they can't actually Look, produce I, a committee. I'm wondering what what on earth the British government could have done in terms of setting up an Iraq inquiry. Because if you were to second guess the decision that it was legal, you land an awful lot of people, innocent people who were sent to mm. war in trouble. Mm. And uh, I just don't think in terms of the national interest, this committee could go there. And I actually think that they're well chosen in terms of sitting there, being rather boringly conscious of the moral dilemmas that they have to juggle with, and to come down on the side of the best uh, assessment of what happened in light of the fact that if they actually accused anybody of anything illegal, uh, then the shit would hit the fan. Yeah. Um, Hashir, let, let me go through. Um, 
what yeah. I think it's trying to do is looking at the events between 2001 and to the present date. So it's not just how it all started. It's covering the decision to go to war. Yes. It's going to cover whether the, anybody believed the troops were properly prepared, how the conflict was conducted, and one of the big gaps, obviously, what planning there was for its aftermath. Now, that's the good part and the good and the honest and the true the part of it. Important lessons to be learned there. Yes, yes right. but isn't it, in fact, I mean, without going into the rights and wrongs of this, isn't this really a trial of Tony Blair? It could be. I think the two uh, Jewish historians that John was referring to, Sir Lawrence Friedman and Sir Martin Gilbert, um, I happen to know both of them. I think they are solid people. I think they are no one's poodles. And I, they will, within the narrow remit of their inquiry, they'll get to whatever truth can be found. I think um, that, therefore, I have confidence in this. Um, I would like, I would have liked, them to be told also to look into the morality of going to war because I still believe it was a good cause but that's obviously not going to be covered Well actually Sir John Chilcott did say that they would look at whether it was the right decision and well made that raises the question for me the right decision from whose point of view? Mm. From an Iraqi point of view? From the point of view of the Iranians who've benefited so enormously from the aftermath? From the point of view of the British Armed Forces? Indeed, from the point of view of the Americans, whom Tony Blair clearly thought he was helping, but who actually hastened their own decline by this whole adventure? And what worries me is that it's all taking place without the witnesses being under oath. Uh, what difference would that make? Well, it does mean that uh, their memory can be allowed to be a little bit fragile. I know at the end of their account they're required to sign a piece of paper in which they say they've given a full and truthful account. But it would be far more incisive, in my view, if they had been obliged to answer questions you know, under oath. But Sir John Chilcott, the chairman, uh, he was a former permanent secretary in Northern Ireland office so knows the idea and the sensitivities of conflict and he watched the the whole Savile inquiry into Bloody Sunday uh, and the delicacy of that inquiry where I don't believe the witnesses took an oath he knows that this is not a trial but he also knows how easily it would turn out to be a trial because a of some hunt. or a witch hunt mm. for some of the, the, the personalities, and once you introduce mm. Rosemary the idea of an oath of off, you know, I'll take the oath and tell the truth, etc. One, you're assuming that the people might not be telling the truth, which is, I mean, looking at the, the cast of this lot, and secondly, you start to give it some legal standing, don't yeah. you? <sighs> yes, indeed, you do start to give it some legal standing, but but can you imagine? these people as individuals if they need to guard their own rears uh, starting to tell on each other i mean you'd, you'd have a crisis in the civil service and i think really what's being tested here is a british government that made a decision in a rather small clique and it was the job of the civil servants to do as they were told to try and inform the government of the implications as best they could, but I don't believe they were allowed to debate with the senior political figures as much as they should have done the likely implications of this invasion. But the, the point is, it's the politicians, the political leadership, that is at fault, if anybody is, in not having thought through the consequences. Can I ask you all a, 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 one question, because it seems important. Um, during the 
the big uh, run-up to that uh, to this war, the 2003 war, each one of you, in a different way, was very much concerned, or sometimes involved, advising different groups, mm. sitting on committees, visiting mm. different departments, on to get your impressions of a what might happen and whether it was right to mm. do it or not. This, do you think that any each one of you do? Do you think this uh, this inquiry is going to satisfy any of the doubts that people really had about it, Rosemary? I know my personal frustration because I attended two significant behind closed doors brainstormings in the United States where I was one of a number of experts that the military had called in, the US military, including the Navy, to brainstorm the day after. And I knew in the summer of 2002 that we were talking about the day after invasion. I found it laughable to come home to the UK and find that it, discussions about the day after invasion were ruled out of order by the government because that suggested that it might happen. So uh, They on. had to keep alive the fiction that if Saddam Hussein did the right thing, there need not be a war. And so the government wasn't yeah, but, interested. Yeah, but the um, people in Mod were actually planning it anyway. Of course. But, so there was a huge divide between those in the know uh, and... The great British public, the ones that marched in the streets, the Parliament, the Cabinet. We know from the Butler inquiry that the civil service prepared lengthy papers for Cabinet debate and they were never tabled in front of the Cabinet. There, there was the most appalling distrust of the capacity of the British to decide what was in their own interests. What I find odd is not so much the procedural complexity, but the fact that we have to get down to analysing the reason that we went to war at all. Which is really what's been happening that's, in the past few days, that's isn't what it? We have. I mean, initially, we were told that this was to um, get rid of the terrorism and the Al-Qaeda connection. Well, it's, it's been made patent that there was no Al-Qaeda connection. In fact, after 9-11, uh, Saddam Hussein distanced himself very definitely from Al-Qaeda's operators. And the other point is regime Which change. we knew at the time, didn't Which we? Which we knew at the time. And the intelligence but people told the Prime Minister. They, they, they informed her that there was no serious relationship between uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, Al-Qaeda. The other thing is regime change. Uh, I know the fiction was kept going until the very last minute that it was a question of um, weapons of mass destruction, but regime change was, was discussed in Washington before 9-11. Uh, and then again, it, it gathered pace after 9-11, particularly in America. Quickly, uh, Christopher, uh, for many weeks before Britain and America went to war, I was on a small committee of uh, academics at King's College, often under the chairmanship of Professor uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman. We were advising the generals planning for the war, British Army generals, what to expect in Iraq, what kind of pitfalls they might fall into. I was given the impression, first of all, that planning was thorough. I think now it, now it wasn't. But secondly, I was given the strong impression, weeks and weeks and weeks ahead, first of all, special forces were already in Iraq, Covertly. But no Green Army. That's right. But above all, um, the impression I got some, that something unspoken was going on, even between members of the cabinet, that the idea of America going to war without Britain, its closest ally in NATO, uh, accompanying it was unthinkable because 
in the anger of the Americans after 9-11, uh, NATO might be finished. So that's the impression right. I remember. Okay. Listen, um, following the inquiry, the BBC's political correspondent, Rob Watson. Rob, to you, as... You know, BBC's United Nations correspondent, then Washington, then Defence and Security correspondent, uh, and now at Westminster for a time. It's a perfect spectator sport, this, isn't it? Well, got a, hello, Christopher, and hello, everybody else. Uh, I, I've got to say, it has been a bit of a trip down memory lane, because, as, as you say, I was at the UN at some of the key periods where the... The weapons inspectors were running up into trouble in Iraq, and then, of course, I was in Washington in the run-up to the war, and then defence and security here, and, and then and then the political perch at Westminster. So, it's been a fabulous vantage point. Yeah, tell me, um, this week um, there are those people, um, some of them in the in the um, British press as well, who are saying, "Oh, well, you know, nothing more than a bit of uh, history thing, and it's not going to prove anything," and yet there is. Interesting stuff this week. People um, like Sir Michael Ward, the legal advisor to the Foreign Office, Peter Ricketts, the chairman of at the time of uh, JIC, the Joint Intelligence Committee. I thought Simon Webb, the political director at the MOD, is anyone actually without a knighthood? I mean, what happened to him? What did he do wrong? Um, <laughs> it's <but> coming. <laughs> it must be. Well, if he keeps his nose clean, that's an unfair. That's an unfair thing to say. Um, it was interesting that they did set it up. There was a sense of uneasiness that wasn't there. I, I've had from this week. And then today, um, Sir Christopher Mayer, our, our Washington ambassador. It, it's been fascinating. I can only put it that way now. To try and distill it down into a few paragraphs is going to be tricky, but let, mm. let me try it. First of all, I think it was wrong, those people who said, oh, well, this, this inquiry, total waste of time. It, it may be that the conclusions of it won't be as hard-hitting as, as some opponents of the war would like, but the process, the, the testimony, the witnesses, I mean, they, they all had front-row seats in, in history uh, being made and unfolding. So what have we heard so far? Well, if I was going to sum up those first two couple of days, which had basically senior foreign office officials, Ministry of Defence uh, officials, I, I would say this, that they, you know, they basically said, look, did we think that Iraq was contained towards the end of the 1990s? Yes. Were there other countries that were more of a threat in terms of WMD? Yes. But was there something special about Iraq? Yes, because Saddam Hussein was very aggressive in their view, and there was a good chance once the weapons inspectors had left in 1998 that he would be up to no good. But, and here is the big but, what, what you got from all of these people was really a big driving force was the fact that the mood had changed in Washington and that the right-wingers in the administration, who'd sort of talked about regime change before even the Bush administration came to office, once 9-11 had happened, the sort of shock waves, the whole tolerance for the idea of, of anyone out there who was a threat, it, it just went. And, and so they took over the show. And, and ultimately, what we've been hearing from Sir Christopher Mayer, who, as the ambassador to, to Washington, really had a... He was at the very heart of these transatlantic discussions. We basically heard from him that, look, that the, the UK understood that the Americans were pretty much unstoppable in their desire to get rid of Saddam Hussein, and we quickly went on side. What's been fascinating about his testimony is him basically really giving Tony Blair a right kicking by saying he could have had so much more influence given the relationship that he had and that essentially British support was given to the United States very, very cheaply and that we got little in return. Right. Tell me... Um were there questions for you that weren't asked? 
Well, I guess that may be still to come, but, uh, I, you know, in terms of the big questions, which is when did, when did the U UK decide to have regime change as a policy as well as the, as the US? And that's something that we've sort of struggled with, and, and I think over the last few days we, we've heard that really, and that it was in the beginning of 2002, London, Tony Blair in particular, realised that the Americans wanted Saddam Hussein out, and essentially we went along with it. So that was the main question, I guess, on the politi political side that we wanted answering. I guess what I'm, I'm looking to now is to see, uh, to hear a bit more about just what went so badly wrong in, in the planning for the aftermath of Saddam Hussein toppling. And again, we've had a little bit of a hint of that so far. There was a fascinating anecdote from Sir Christopher Mayer. He said he was sitting next to Dick Cheney at dinner one night in the run-up to the, the war. Who was the vice president at the time. President. And he kind of leaned over to him and said, you know, once you've got all this, your problems out of the way with this vote in the House of Commons, and, and once we've rolled into Baghdad, you'll soon see them cheering and, uh, and all of this angst about what will happen afterwards. It'll all seem like history. Yes. Whoops. Whoops. Um, you're going to be there for some time, aren't you? I'm not sure about me personally, because the BBC is going to, from now on, it's, gonna, it's, it's got a dedicated team, and so I, I think I'll be dipping in and out of it while I concentrate on current-day British politics. But it, it's, it's clearly, clearly a, a fascinating insight into the way that British government works, the intelligence, military side of things worked in, in making what is, after all, probably the most controversial foreign policy decision of a generation. Mm. Listen, before you go, can we swap wars? Um, Tuesday... Um, the um, president, President Obama, is going to say what he's going to do about you know, reinforcing the American uh, military there. What do, what, what, what do we think it's going to say? Well, this has become a bit of an industry, trying to predict what he's going to say, but, but what I've been hearing out of Washington, although I don't think I'd want to stake my mortgage on it, is that essentially uh, President Obama is going to go along with M M General McChrystal, the man who's in charge over there in Iraq, for his in Afghanistan, for there to be more troops, maybe not the full 40,000, but, but something getting pretty close there. So I think President Obama will, will, if you like, have a throw of the dice, unpopular though it's going to be with his party and with many, in the, uh, many uh, ordinary Americans, he's going to throw the dice, send more troops, but I think he's probably going to do more to spell out what's going to constitute success, and therefore how you then get out again. The exit strategy, exactly. which so far has been missing, is going to come out on Tuesday, or some idea of it. Something like it. Okay, Rob, uh, maybe talk to you next week about all this when it's happened. All right. Many thanks indeed. Uh, Resume, I mean, coming on, let's come on to Afghanistan as well. Um... I wonder if, if someone like President Obama, who has thought this thing through, quite clearly thought the strategy through, not just uh, whether he goes along with McChrystal or not, uh, how much does he have to sort of think, well, I wonder what Gordon Brown's thinking in London or, or, or whatever? I mean, presumably nothing at all. Well, we've talked about this a couple of times on SITREP, and I think it's been reinforced this last week, this idea that the Americans simply don't need any more to pay much attention to the Europeans, including the Brits. And if you think about it, there's been some stuff in the press about poor old Sarkozy, mm. who actually reversed the French position or radically changed the French position and role in NATO in hopes of a special relationship with Washington and just can't get it. It's not available to him. And the appointments made 
by the European Union are an indication that we're more navel-gazing than we are a, a force to be reckoned with in the rest of the world, and so it will continue for at least another five years, I reckon. Right. Hajir? Today's Times newspaper has a very strongly worded, angry editorial against Mr Obama, saying, first of all, he's dithering, he's wasting too much time, and secondly, that he's not paying attention, as Rosemary has just said, to European allies. But... On the face of it, it doesn't make sense because, after all, he has Sorry, to... You don't, it doesn't make sense that he's... For, for the Americans, because um, not to pay attention to the Europeans means that um, he cannot easily sell this policy to the Americans. If he can say to them, look, the uh, Europeans are also going to increase their contribution, that would be easier for him to sell the policy to the Americans. But I agree with the Times that he has uh, now held 10 meetings over this issue it's easy to say he's mulling over the correct strategy, but I think he has wasted time. Yes, John, you no, don't, you don't uh, see it as a, a, a first president since Jack Kennedy to actually think the thing through? I wouldn't fault him on the amount of time he's taken. I, I think if he's faced with such an enormous problem, with complexities over the bogus election that got Karzai back into power, rushing it would have been folly. I think the longer he's taken, the more decisive it will be in the long run and I think for Bob Ainsworth to go um, sort of the defense sector. seeing how, how Britain was left dangling it was just a, a testament of his unfitness to be a, a cabinet member uh, really, um, you if, heard it if here you're first, committing 30,000 yeah. American troops, you have to consider it very carefully. Yes. The other thing is, um, if you look at the, the, the logistics of this, no, not the logistics, the timetable of this, uh, he may have been able to make some sorts of statements uh, maybe a fortnight ago, three weeks ago, but he then went off on an Asiatic tour. He most certainly wasn't going to make this statement before he went off on the mm. Asiatic tour, was he? Well, at some level, there's a great sense of relief, I think, mm. yes. that we're through the decade mm. of the... Uh, Instant. Cons consumption of the Western Alliance as the, the biggest thing on Earth, you know? Mm. And we really are into the Asian century, and the Americans very sensibly are remembering that they're an Asia-Pacific power. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that the White House is now saying that uh, part of the Afghanistan solution is to reduce the conflict between India and Pakistan, and they say that's part of their, their role. And also, he's got there today, and he was there yesterday, I think, that Prime Minister Singh of India, and he... President Obama has got to say to Mr. Singh, now listen, although Pakistan obviously very important, mm -hmm. John, um, in the whole security of the region, mm -hmm. we're not letting you go, we're not ignoring you, and that's what Mr. Singh has to go back to, uh, to, to Delhi with. Well, actually, he's going, uh, going to Port of Spain for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, and it's rather depressing that uh, in advance of that meeting, which had a golden opportunity for quiet uh, consultations between the Indians and the, and the Pakistanis, neither foreign minister is, is agreed to meet. I think it's a great pity. It's a, it's a great opportunity, and it is important, you know, if something's got to be resolved, that they start talking together and not just making statements about Mumbai, about Kashmir. Right. Um, listen, I want to um, want to go to Northern Ireland. Um, dissident IRA members came close a few days ago to making the murder headlines this week. 400-pound car bomb outside the police board headquarters in the Clarendon Dock uh, complex. Um, the detonator went uh, went off. The bomb did not. 
And the only it was only good police work that stopped another officer being murdered. Well, on the line line from Belfast, the Independent David McKittrick. The um, the police service in Northern Ireland chief constable um, David Matt Baggett says he wants six hundred more officers off their paper pushing and get on the street. Um, public confidence or counter-terrorism or both? A bit of both. Um, obviously, it's been a very upsetting period this year with dozens of attacks, really, from these uh, Republican dissidents. And the feeling is that um, in many quarters is that the police force in these more peaceful times have, has been run down. It's certainly become smaller. And the paradox is that the, the, the big difficulty is, is that the authorities are trying to put together a, a much more civilian uh, and community-orientated police force, but it's obviously very difficult to do that when these uh, bombings and shootings are taking place. Who's running the dissident Republicans? It, it's a, a, a motley assortment. Uh, there, there are really three more or less separate groups which cooperate occasionally, but they are separate, and they're a mixture of First of all, some old veteran republics from the old provisional IRA, which which ran the, the campaign, which of course lasted for 40 years, and then they are um, recruiting some. They're recruiting some teenagers to come in with them. The authorities are much more worried about the the old hands, the veterans, because they have an awful lot of expertise than they are about the younger the younger people. And Sinn Féin's got no influence. No, Sinn Féin they have called these people traitors, and these people in the dissidents have, an, have used the same word against Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin regards itself as now political, and we have seen, the, and the authorities are satisfied about this, we've seen the disappearance of the old IRA. And we had thought that, yes, there would be a few splinter groups like this uh, uh, hanging around, but that they would be mopped up. Uh, the, the, the worry is that they actually seem to be posing a greater threat now, and although most of Northern Ireland is at peace, and although almost everybody subscribes to the peace and political settlement we have, there's still some people who think that bombing and shooting is the way ahead. Joe, I was, re I was reading um, something that the American uh, economics uh, attaché or envoy, I think he's called, um, uh, to Ireland was saying, Declan Kelly, he says, you know, all this is bad for business. Let's get the, let's get down to basics. It certainly is. I mean, day-to-day <clears throat> -day life goes on normally in 95, 97% of Northern Ireland. But you st at a distance, you still have people saying, well, look, here's a bomb which nearly went off, and here's a, a shooting attack which nearly came off. And it's very hard to, to explain that it, it's, it's, it's mostly peaceful. But what the world wants to hear is that everything in Northern Ireland is entirely peaceful. That's obviously still the aspiration, but we're still some way from achieving that. Right. David McKittrick, thank you very much indeed. Um, I wanted to say on the back of that, actually, that um, mm. I'm very struck by some of the insights of this book that's just come out by Mats Berdal, yes. who's now at King's College, but uh, also with a hat at the International Institute of Strategic Studies. It's Building Peace After War, and he takes case studies from across mm. Africa, including... Uh, the Congo, and he also uh, includes the Balkans, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and in the background there, some other experiences in Latin America and indeed in Ireland, and he talks about how latterly we've had this strange perception 
echoed in Dick Cheney's remarks to Sir Christopher Mayer at mm. dinner that Rob Watson mentioned, that once you've done regime change, once you've ended a war with some kind of formal agreement, you then get total peace. There is a sliding scale. It is normal after hot conflict to have a period of continued conflict, continued violence, of a, a crime phenomenon that is rarely taken into account, and that this lesser level of violence and significant crime may be serving a need for the local population pending the building of the new institutions that uh, can take the society forward on a completely different plane from the one that produced the war. And our understanding of what happens in post-conflict situations seems to be desperately lacking. That thesis seems entirely academic to me, because if you look at Cyprus, you see that the conflict of 74 did not produce continued conflict. And in yeah. fact, it was just the sense on both sides that, that keeps the green line uh, free from the sort of uh, thesis that has just been Well, let's follow up with Cy Cyprus then, Job, because uh, uh, Chris Bryant, the Minister of Europe mm. in Cyprus, what's he doing there? Well, he's just come back and he was trying to convince them that there'd be no external pressure on uh, the two communities to reach a settlement and said there was no deadline. In fact, there is a deadline, and that deadline is in two words, Dervis Erlu. He is the uh, leader of the National Unity Party in uh, Northern Cyprus, and uh, his party gained significant uh, victories at the parliamentary elections, and the uh, thinking now is that he will succeed as president in April when the elections are held, so that, in fact, Mehmed Ali Talat, the current uh, leader uh, of the Turkish Cypriots, who's very accommodating in many ways, uh, and Dimitris Christofias, the uh, president uh, of Cyprus... Who was in London here... Who was and the Prime Minister. I think they now realise they've got to get on with it and solve these major problems, such as the recovery of property that was taken from the uh, Greek Cypriots, the, uh, the number of settlers. Uh, I mean, I think the Nicosia they would accept 50,000, but of course the Turkish Cypriots want maybe 100,000. The question of guarantees, uh, I don't think they want Britain and Turkey to have any role on that. They want the UN. But these are problems that have got to be resolved very quickly, otherwise you'll come to April, and uh, if Eralu comes in, there's no chance of a settlement. Right, right. Um, very quickly, because we've got to move on to the second mm -hmm. half, um, any other business? I was, you mentioned, John, about uh, Prime Minister Singh going to the Com mm -hmm. Commonwealth Conference in Port of Spain on tomorrow, isn't it? Uh, it starts uh, on <coughs> Friday and goes on for two days. It used to go on for five days. It's a real discussion group, but now it's uh, only uh, two days. It's the heads of it, it, it's it's a, all the heads, heads of, heads of government from 53 countries. It used to be a very effective forum. In fact, you can recall how in 1979 uh, in Zambia, it was the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting which uh, set the scene for a negotiated settlement of Rhodesia and the birth of an independent Zimbabwe. No, I'm afraid it's descended into a pretty much a talking shop. And yet Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary-General, he's going there he's as well. He's going there. I mean, he gives it his blessing. But there you have a suspended member of the Commonwealth, Zimbabwe. And what are they doing about it? Very little. President Zuma of South Africa is supposed to be uh, uh, trying to accommodate the two sides in power sharing, but really is not prepared to pull the plug on, on Zimbabwe, stop the fuel, stop the electricity. That would end Mugabe's rule. Right. Rosemary, one of your lot, the Jordanians... The king has said dissolve parliament. What's going on there? <laughs> ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
R is not enough answer, mm. I have to tell uh, you. Well, first of all, the Parliament doesn't have much power. Right. It's a talking shop, and uh, it's inconvenient when in the talking shop they start airing all sorts of issues that the government uh, needs to suppress. Secondly, progressively, over the last few years, Jordan, as a result of the invasion of Iraq and the non-resolution of the mm -hmm. Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is increasingly beleaguered. It serves a vital purpose, thanks to the king and his immediate entourage, for the Americans and the British in counterterrorism. It is known as the hub of CIA operations against terrorists. And uh, th therefore the government is complicit in a lot of security operations that are deeply unpopular with the Jordanian people. And you also, if that weren't bad enough, have a backlash against the Palestinians by the East Bank Jordanians who feel that if the Israelis aren't going to liberate the Palestinians, they'll end up with them as uh, the dominant force in Jordan at the expense of the old indigenous East Bankers. So it's a crisis situation. The parliament is not of use to the king. It's a nuisance. Right, right. Is that... Um, can we go next door, or sort of almost next door, uh, prisoner exchange with uh, the Palestinians and uh, Israel? Yes, the Israelis were predicting that this would happen, and the only party that they could do the deal with to get back Gilad Shalit, the corporal that was captured uh, by forces inside the Gaza Strip... No, sergeant. In, <laughs> oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, he promoted to be sergeant. Hmm. Right, I think... Given his ordeal, he sorted. deserves it. He yes. does, yes. Uh, and he uh, was captured at the start of what turned into a war on the Lebanon front in 2006 and has remained in captivity. Now, the Hamas guys seem to be driving rather a hard bargain. They want a few hundred Palestinian prisoners released in return for Shalit. But there's a great sense of foreboding over this deal, because if it is done, yes, Shalit comes home, but what a price to pay. And a lot of Israelis will say too high a price was paid because some of the prisoners who will be released have blood on their hands. And well, that's an important one. They want uh, Barghouti there, who would be able to challenge yeah, Mahmoud it's, Abbas. It's, it's an incredible... He's uh, in a five years... Uh, manipulation of the political scene, because you also then have the fact that Hamas gets the credit for these releases, mm -hmm. as opposed to Mahmoud Abbas, who's been the good guy mm -hmm. all along. And if that weren't enough, you, you, get, you give the... Hamas guys mm. the impression that just capture another soldier mm. and you can bargain some more. Right. Hashir, Iran, we're yes. going to finish then. Iran, right. uh, what's this been, war game that's going Iran on? Has been, yes, Iran has been holding war games and everybody can see that they are designed to defend Iran's nuclear sites from um, air force attacks from abroad. But I've been reading the abroad? Iranian... <laughs> I've been reading, uh, reading the, the Iranian press and there's, the officials are very frustrated by the behavior of the Russians. They now feel that... The Russians? The Russians Why are the Russians? on leak with the, with the Americans and the West now. They are delaying the delivery of the S-300 sophisticated anti-aircraft missiles. And on top of that, the uh, Russians have again um, delayed the completion of the Boucher a nuclear reactor on the Persian Gulf. And so the Iranians are beginning to feel very, very surrounded. The government of Ahmadinejad, he's now in Venezuela at the moment, placating support abroad, but the government seems very r rattled, isolated from the people, 
as well as isolated from the international community. It's, it's almost a sort of sense that um, you, you, those officials that we were watching earlier this mm. week at the Chilcot inquiry were more or less, John, telling a similar story about, oh, well, the sanctions and everything was actually working <laughs> and the uh, leadership was getting isolated about Iraq, wasn't it? Indeed. In fact, they're now saying that the sanctions were so good that um, Saddam Hussein couldn't assemble uh, any weapons. Uh, it didn't matter really about non-compliance. Well, the, the American official that was inside the White House when the revolution happened in Iran and the hostages were taken by the student movement in Tehran, Gary Sick, is saying at the moment, as is George Perkovich of um, the Carnegie Endowment, and they're both big Iran watchers over the years, they are saying a bit of deja vu. There's an internal struggle going on. They think the Pasteran, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, had intended to be fully in control of the whole system by now, and it backfired a bit on them. The uh, opposition they encountered in June in the elections, Ahmadinejad uh, is now undermined because he was ready to accept the deal on the nuclear uh, enriched uranium that was to be shipped out because he has alienated himself from the opposition forces in Iran and you have a three-way split at the top in Iran between Ahmadinejad and his cronies and the supreme leader on the one hand, the, those who oppose them like Rafsanjani who's not to uh, conduct prayers in the Eid al-Adha which is happening this week which is unprecedented and the third element is the Revolutionary Guard Corps and it's, it's open for grabs who's going to succeed in this but for the Americans the problem is who do you talk to on the nuclear issue? Can I ask you a personal question, Hashir? This is um, this is your homeland. Well, um, I've been here for fifty years yes, now. Yes, but even so, it's where you were born, it's where your <laughs> family it. is. Uh, also, also of, of the of Kurdish people, you've got to remember that. So I've never seen eye to eye with with these people in Tehran. No, but if, as, as a place, as an identity. Yes, because um, I want to talk about American Thanksgiving at the moment. That's all about identity. My family are there. I do care about them deeply, about Iranians, generally everyone. I think huge suffering goes on as a result. Um, majority of Iranians are under the absolute line of poverty now, and they are getting poorer and poorer. And, um, so the, the future is bleak. I had to write to one, one of my brothers recently, and I said my biggest fear looking at the future of Iran is a devastating civil war on the scale of the Spanish civil war that this would destroy the country. If that happens, there's enormous anger in Iran against the, the, this clique, as you said, who, who've taken over under the right. supreme leader. Right. It is, uh, what, 38 minutes past the hour? Uh, with me at the SITREP studio, um, Dr. Esme Hollis from City University here in London, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and from the Limehouse Group of Global Analysts, you've just been listening to, Hajir Tamorian. Um, we've come to that bit of the programme, we sort of SITREP overheard, it's part of the programme when we think aloud about things that probably concern you, but don't always come on your radar, um, like the fact that if you're not the lead husky... The view is always the same, as quoting Sitret's famous hockey mum at the moment, Sarah Palin. Um, all this week, this Iraq inquiry has produced headlines largely inspired by the question, will the truth, truth be told at last, John? You were saying earlier, well, you know, how can you get to the truth? Um, isn't it true, though, that this is all about Tony Blair? 
really it is. He was the one who had to make the decision. He was the one who had to uh, sell a dossier that has been, you know, widely condemned. Uh, he is the one uh, who had to commit um, an army that went to Iraq and cost the lives of 179 people. And day by day, outside the Quintus was the second conference center, there are relatives holding up signs that say blood on your hands. This is mm. the atmosphere in which it's taking place. This idea of legality, um, Rosemary, the then Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral, uh, now Lord Boyce, mm. he was saying, you've got to tell me this is going to be a legal war. I mean, for, for, for Chief of the Defence Staff to have to ask that mm. question. And just before going into action, and it would appear that two things then happened. The Attorney General had been saying up until that time that the legal situation was sufficiently tricky that they really needed a second UN resolution to be safe. Mm. And then changed his opinion and said it is legal under the existing resolution mm -hmm. on which uh, Iraq was supposedly contained and disarmed after the mm. war. And, uh, no, I beg your pardon, it was the one on which Iraq was forced out of... Kuwait. Kuwait. Mm. I'm getting confused. It was yeah. one of those 687 or 866 the, mm. them resolutions mm. uh, as opposed to that use of force is appropriate uh, if Iran does not, Iraq does not comply. And uh, I think I've just given a perfect illustration of how muddled the situation was to yes. refer back to the past mm. and which bit of the past and the Attorney which General's... Which is what Chilcot's trying to do. Uh, the is Attorney he... General's uh, opinion was then only delivered to the Cabinet and Parliament in, in summary form and the final assurance that it was legal came from the Prime Minister, which I believe, under the unwritten constitution yeah. of Britain, is not sufficient to ensure that it is legal. That's right. Hashir, I mean, is it, is it, is, this is the important question in, in the public's mind. Do you think the public actually care now, or is this whole thing gone? I think there is the uh, sneaking suspicion that they are trying to get at Tony Blair uh, as an extension of George Bush and the Americans over the technicality. In other words, yes, he said, uh, he claimed that the Iraqis had uh, weapons of mass destruction. We, as, a, as someone who had been educated partly in chemistry, I knew that those binary chemical weapons had to be renewed every six months anyway. They, they deteriorated. Any nation, that any government that, that used them uh, had the ability to get them together again. And if you had a ferocious, maniacal, genocidal tyrant such as Saddam Hussein and his family, they would be there within six months anyway. So, And then ten days before the great event, it was decided that the evidence was such that they weren't there. I mean, yeah. but it was too late to stop. Yeah. I oh. wished at the time that the uh, British and uh, British government had said, "Look, this man has already caused several wars, and hundreds of thousands of people have died. If he continues in in place, more bloodshed will be caused. The world mm -hmm. will suffer. Why don't we say this is national policy in our interest to remove this maniac?" 
such as Pol Pot as Saddam Hussein. And well, we they, didn't go well, into and remove Pol Pot, and I can think I mean, of a load uh, of leaders I'm throughout Mugabe, the world. You, you'd start to see the presence there, Hazir. Yeah. So I mean, I'm you'd be sending more, the army all around the world. I'm asking for more uh, honesty. Yes, I think <laughs> mm. he uh, perhaps he thought he couldn't carry the Parliament with him if I, he. Claimed morality. Okay, I want to go to uh, the United States because I wonder if this sort of inquiry is possible in a different form in the United States. I mean, although um, on the you could argue that Osama bin Laden started it all and he is the one that ought to be before the inquiry, but that's another story. On the line from Cedar City, where he is, I'm told, up to the neck in Turkey, dressing yams, potatoes, giblet giblet gravy and cranberries ale and white wine to say nothing of the pumpkin and apple pies yes it is thanksgiving in america um up to his eyes or arms is the professor of international politics at the university of southern utah michael stathis um happy thanksgiving michael and thank you for joining happy us happy thanksgiving to everyone <laughs> uh, are the um reasons for going to iraq still in the american public debate oh absolutely and uh, there is uh, enormous cynicism uh, in this country concerning the original rationale for war in Iraq. Um, well, uh, unless you're a member of the Cheney family, uh, then all of the connections to al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and uh, the imminent threat from uh, weapons of mass destruction are established uh, fact. But, of course, this is not true. Um, and uh, but, but the amazing thing is there's probably as many as uh, 22, 25 percent of Americans who are polled who still buy that excuse. Hmm. You see, it, it's, it struck me that it might be that under a system that um, sends even the best presidents away to their libraries after two terms, um, it doesn't draw a line under such a sensitive issue, does it? No. Um, and... Uh, I think it could be said, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, two of uh, the major figures in that war, uh, the British Prime Minister Tony Blair and um, uh, George W. Bush, as you put it, uh, have moved on to other things. Most Americans are, are kind of ready to move on as, uh, as regards Iraq. Uh, especially given uh, the other war in Afghanistan. But they've got 150,000 soldiers or whatever, in, or 130,000 in, in Iraq, uh, and I know they're, they're drawing down, but they really can't move on from it very easily, can they? No, it's, re it's, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, and I, I just talked to my students about this uh, uh, before the break, uh, that uh, how few Americans are really aware uh, just how many American troops are still in Iraq. And um, uh, it, it, in some ways, is becoming a forgotten war. But it's still there. And um, now and again, uh, in a sporadic fashion, a terrorist act here, the death of an American soldier there, uh, it, uh, reality does come back a little bit, but, but generally the focus is somewhere else. I want to ask you something which, um, which we never get much chance to talk about. I suppose we're back to the giblet gravy here. Um, <laughs> to understand um, uh, their constant um, ally... Europeans have to understand the significance of Thanksgiving, don't they? Explain it, will you? Well, it, it's all about the turkey uh, and uh, the giblet gravy and, and the pies. It, um, it, it is a day more seriously uh, that, uh, of course, uh, of uh, giving thanks uh, and... Uh, 
uh, after this past uh, economic spell, of course, um, uh, well, it could be argued that fewer and fewer Americans uh, have an awful lot to be thankful about today. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, uh, there is hope, uh, hope for the future. Those of us uh, who uh, have survived the uh, uh, economic situation uh, really do have an awful lot to be thankful for. But our gaze goes across uh, the sea to, uh, to the Middle East, and uh, uh, we long for the day when uh, we can have a Thanksgiving when, uh, um, well, uh, a lot of our people who have been in the Middle East and Southwest Asia are home again. Because that's the whole point of Thanksgiving, isn't it? It's the urge to be home for it. And it's a yes. complex emotion, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is very much. And uh, I know uh, my uh, my sister in St. George, just to the south, uh, has a, uh, a son, my nephew, in the Marine Corps. And, uh, of course, everything uh, was pointing towards uh, hope that... Uh, uh, he uh, would be uh, here for Thanksgiving uh, instead of being shipped out to uh, Iraq or Af- Afghanistan. At, at the moment, it looks like he'll be here for Christmas, but not Thanksgiving. So there's an empty seat at the table, and that is true of many American families. Stay with us, Michael. I want to bring in um, people in the studio here. Rosemary, um, are we making, or am I making too much of this idea of, of, of Europeans at the moment, especially, having to understand far more about America than they do? I don't know where you're leading with that. Uh, what what would be the benefit of them understanding better what does and should motivate the Americans? If you take the whole idea of the, for example, the Obama statement that we expect on Tuesday, and how, for whatever reasons, I know you don't entirely agree with it, that, that the United States wants at least the political cooperation in Europe. Um, and for to understand more about the United States, the whole how the United States works and thinks. Well, I was reminded today, talking to my students, that uh, we were talking about the rise of the U.S. influence in the Middle East and taking it up until the 1990s. And I'm so conscious that the Americans, having stood out against empire and won a lot of friends in the region, uh, having rescued the Egyptians in the Suez War of 1956, and uh, therefore, in a sense, confronting the French and the British imperialists and saying no more of this colony stuff, no more of this spread of uh, influence. And yet... 50, 60 years on, mm. certainly from the... Uh, they, they began uh, with complicity in overthrowing the Republican Prime Minister in Tehran and reinstalling the Shah in 1953. Since then, gradually, slowly but surely, they have taken on the trappings of an informal empire in the Middle East and they've got all the problems and all the resentment and animosity that goes with it and the British used to experience. Well, Michael, that it is, there's also a sense then, isn't there, that um, Thanksgiving is one of those moments when it's almost as if the other world, even the real world, is shut out and that family can simply sit around the table and there is part of what uh, Americans, Americans think about. I think it is a, uh, one of the most uh, typical of American uh, celebrations and, and holidays. Um, and, of course, we have a few, like the Fourth of July, uh, uh, maybe Halloween to a, to a certain extent. But uh, this one stands out. And uh, it's the beginning, really, of the Christmas season uh, as well. But um, we, we, as a country, do tend to look inward uh, here. 
And uh, this is why I think very definitely the, uh, the president chose uh, to put off an announcement on Afghanistan uh, until next Tuesday. Uh, certainly not uh, uh, the day before uh, or the week of, uh, of Thanksgiving. That would have been very, very bad politics. Michael, uh, thank you very much. Back oh, to the uh, back to the giblets. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, national identity is what we're really talking about. Is um, I, I wonder if that is disappearing, and that again is very important. So, uh, if you're a European, Hashir. Well, yes, Europeans are becoming more and more federal. After all, we are to- talking only a few days after. Europe got its first president. Am I right? Is no, the council got the um, European Council, <coughs> not Europe. Yeah, foreign policy supremo in Baroness Ashton, etc., etc. It's beginning more and more to be like a state, it's super state. So it's natural to believe that under such circumstances, as that's just the opposite, isn't it? The opposite. Yeah, the opposite. Yeah, we chose people that are not going to have a, an influence in foreign well, affairs. Give, give them time. Give them time. Mm. This is only s- window dressing. Mm. You see, why do why do we need a? a um, are you fearful of the federalism then? I do fear uh, of um, it, it becoming such a hodgepodge that it will do nothing at mm. all. Because uh, uh, you understand identity, national identity. Yes, I do. F- I do. I'm very greatly Europhile, I mean, Mm. Eurocentric. I think that Europe, since uh, the ancient Greeks have led the world, have given us almost everything that's good and everything. So I want Europe to prosper, and I want Europe to be this beacon of inspiration for the world and a leader. And yet, if the European community now becomes a collection of bankers only who care about the next budget, I think the world will lose a great deal. So I'm but it was always like that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like that anyway. Well, I, I, no. I, I would argue. Anyway. I mean, the point is, is, is me that it, the, the Lisbon Treaty and the appointment of President of the Council of Europe, etc., was really about individual countries saying, no, 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 we want to re- have individual power, wasn't it? Yeah, and they had to put together the Lisbon Treaty to make up for the fact that several countries in Europe had voted against its predecessor, the Constitution. They didn't want to get closer together, and the elite were having to discover that the people still had a very strong sense of separate identities. And uh, we're having in Britain now, we're having talk of, so, uh, (laughs) what will be the future of Scotland in relation to England? I um, hesitate to go there. We've been there with John Dickey (laughs) before, (laughs) and he says there's no danger there. But but there's always a tension between asserting Mm. your identity, be it Kurdish Mm. or Scottish, and buying into, or American, and buying into a larger project and feeling diluted by that larger project. And let down. Uh, well, it just it's such a mishmash that you don't know what you're identifying mm. with. You want something strong to identify with. But Britain, uh, especially in the context of the invasion of Iraq and the continuance of the Palestinian problem and the very, very serious problems that Afghanistan and Pakistan are experiencing, Britain has an issue of where do all those migrant families that came from those particular bits of the empire fit in to British identity? And we're still struggling with this. Um, Hershey, I'm almost reluctant to ask you as a as a member of Migration Watch, um, <laughs> yes. um, but that that is going to be one of the huge issues: a question of national identity and a question of 
or personal identity. Yes, and I think you've got to remember also the sent sentiments of the host people as well. Thirty years ago, I gave Christian names to my two children and brought them up to be loyal to their country because I was w worried about this uh, uh, the future, asking, who am I? Am I British or am I Kurd living here? So uh, and, uh, I, I also worried about the backlash from the British population. Therefore, I'm not at all surprised by the fact that um, the BNP, um, in my opinion, a semi-fascist uh, party, got 900,000 votes. These are dangerous signs. We, are, we live in dangerous signs. And you I see, think John, can I just run this off and I want to talk something else mm -hmm. um, uh, to end the programme. Mm -hmm. um, I was perhaps making too much of uh, the Europeans have got to understand Thanksgiving mm -hmm. because I mean, anybody who's been to Thanksgiving in an American mm -hmm. home, whatever, yes, knows that it, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is more powerful than, say, in Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it means a lot. Yes. Um, but this question of identity, Hajir is identifying mm -hmm. something that's going that he's been concerned mm -hmm. with and worried about. Uh, Rosemary's saying about the people coming into the United Kingdom and society changing, etc. Over time, British kids whose parents or grandparents, I mean, you know, let's let's mm. not talk about host nations. Uh, what Hajir meant was host nation when he first came. Mm. Um, and bringing up his children, but uh, but there is this this mix here. And you said earlier you told Hajar that his homeland was Iran, and he had to struggle with that. He said, "I've been mm. here fifty years. How long do I have to be here not to belong?" Mm. Right. Well, John, I mean, you've been here quite a time. I'm How long here do you have to be fifty years too? But I still regard my homeland as north of the border. And, and uh, you're here on missionary work, uh, you would say. <laughs> we send down people like Macmillan and and Alec Douglas Hume. Uh, Gordon Brown, yes, but Tony, I mean, Blair. I Tony Blair. It does have a tremendous sentimental attachment. Uh, I mean, uh, on January 25th, uh, coming up, uh, it's the 250th anniversary of Rabbi Burns' birth, and it will produce a tremendous uh, outpouring of national sentiment throughout, uh, not just Scotland, but uh, throughout the, the parts of the Commonwealth where there are Scots. And Russia, of course. Yes, indeed. Listen, mm -hmm. talking about outbursts, um, I heard this week that more than on average 250 laptops more than 250 laptops and memory sticks go missing from the mod every year i hope somebody's listening even on their laptop um that's the average now obviously sometimes there's a good year but the average remains 250 a year since 19 or since 2003 it does john it does seem to lose a lot of laptops it does indeed. I, I can't think of uh, being enough uh, civil servants who go on trains and forget what they're doing in trains and get off without the laptops. I can't understand how they're all going missing unless it's a little trade and second-hand laptop. Yes, but I'm also concerned, uh, Rosemary, some of these laptops are found on the back seats of cars. Now, mm. um, Do we know that these laptops are all going missing in the British Isles? Yes. Ah. It seems a lot of them going missing, mm. but they're left there. Um... I wonder. I was just wondering, Hajir, if if you were gonna if you were gonna lose something, because presumably memory sticks and the laptops have highly secret information um, on them. Um, Definitely, my you, laptop, Christopher, and my uh, memory stick well, have got this. the secrets of my life in in the shape of a three hundred thousand word diary I've been writing God. for myself over the past thirty years. This is the Gladstone yes. of, uh, of, of of the modern Talk, age. Talking now, of Gladstone, let, 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 Gladstone, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gladstone was uh, addressing his diaries to Saint Peter. And I'm who are you? I'm writing for myself. So okay, that when I'm listen, older, if you ha if you 
if you were able to lose something, get rid of something mm. from the record in your life or historically in somebody else's life, what would you lose? I've been wondering about this. Perhaps I, I should ditch my laptop and the memory, memory sticks because I've been writing these for myself so that one day when I'm old and my memory fails, mm. I'll justify to myself that if I did not, did not achieve great, great things, it wasn't because I was lazy. Now... One day, I'll not be capable of reading them anyway. Perhaps I should burn them now. I want to get rid of databases that incline politicians to organise British education around statistical findings when we're talking about quality, not quantity. John. I want to get rid of a record by Tom Jones called The Green, Green Grass of Home. I remember going into a hotel near the Luxembourg Airport in order to get off early in the morning, and in the bar below they played that ten times over and over again, so I had to get out of bed and go up to the airport at three in the but morning. John, it's not yours to get rid of. In <laughs> 21 seconds' time, we're all going to sing it. That's it for this week. My thanks to Rizmi Hollis, John Dickey, and Hashir tomorrow. John is here next week, same time, four o'clock. And or go anytime you like, bfps.com forward slash sitrep. We'll be there. But from now, from me, Christopher Lee, and Marion the